Hi, I'm Katie and welcome to my podcast, My Rare Disease. This is a platform where I raise awareness of something that affects 1 in 17 people, rare disease. By chatting to patients, health professionals and advocates, we talk about all aspects of rare disease, including relationships, mental health and much more. I cannot wait for you to hear some truly inspiring stories and for the amazing guests to share their health experiences. In this episode, I talked to Sarah about her rare disease, PKU, a condition that affects approximately 1 in 15,000 people in the USA. We discussed the psychological impact a rare disease can have, what it means by owning your rare disease, as well as the importance in rare disease research and the brilliant advocacy work Sarah has been involved in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. It feels weird saying that because it's been over a month now but yeah um my first episode back and Sarah is with me today so welcome Sarah thank you for being my first guest back after my break my very used to have you great to be here I'm excited to share my story yeah definitely so we're going to be talking about obviously your rare disease um the psychology of kind of owning your rare disease medical treatment and Sarah's advocacy work so Sarah would you just like to tell everyone about your rare disease, how you were diagnosed, and maybe how um, it affects you day to day? I was born with a rare condition called phenylketonuria. Most people know it as PKU for short because it's such a long name. Actually, one of the more common rare diseases. So, one that people, maybe if they are familiar with the rare disease community, may have heard of that one. I live in the United States, so about one in every 15,000 babies are diagnosed with PKU. Um, And it is diagnosed through a process called newborn screening, where there are a number of genetic disorders that all newborns are screened for because of the impact they'll have on the person's future if they're not treated from birth. There's a handful of other genetic disorders that I'm not as familiar with. So I... um, have known about my rare disease my entire life. I don't know life without it. I am considered first generation sort of for treatment for my condition. I am 41 years old, um, so being born in 1979, newborn screening didn't become very widespread in, in the United States until about the 70s, even though it was policy prior to that. And then when I was born, doctors didn't have as much information as they do now. And so the treatment was, when I was born, a very restrictive medical diet. And so doctors at the time thought that I would eventually be able to be taken off the diet around age eight when my brain had developed. And as I got older, they learned that that wasn't the case. But a lot of my peers and people in my age group with the condition were taken off diet in childhood and struggled with the impacts of that later in life and throughout life. So I was very fortunate to have good medical care, um, but have always been part of the rare disease community even before it had a name. Yeah, I think it's um, an interesting one because obviously I haven't known any different either. Um, I was diagnosed with my rare disease at 10 weeks old and obviously you haven't known any different. And um, yeah, it's an interesting kind of like debate to have because some people that have acquired illness throughout their lifetime think that you know they've known something different so it's maybe somewhat harder for them um 
but yeah I think like if every rare disease comes with its own struggle doesn't it um but yeah thinking about treatment so what kind of hospital appointments and tests what kind of things do you have in regards to your rare disease yeah uh it's changed quite a bit over my lifetime is so the condition um is managed through regular blood tests um and i still do that i still send lab work to my hospital um you know at least once a month but when i was growing up i was on a, a very very restrictive medical diet my body can't break down one of the amino acids in protein and so the way that it was managed was um that basically protein was controlled in food. So a normal human generally eats about 60 to 80 grams of protein a day. Um, and my diet was limited to seven grams of protein. So that's no meat, no cheese, no dairy, no soy, no nuts, no beans, really nothing you could buy at the grocery store other than fruits and vegetables. And I had a, a, a medical formula that especially before the ones they developed smelled really bad and was embarrassing to drink and um, just always had to watch what I ate very, very carefully. Um, treatments changed throughout my life. When I got into my 30s, a treatment called Kuban became available. And that was a pill-based treatment that helps some people tolerate a little bit more protein. Um, and then about two and a half years ago, I started an enzyme therapy that I believe is only available in the United States right now. Although I think some other countries are beginning to trial it. Mm -hmm. And that's basically a shot. So similar to the way diabetics take insulin, I take a, a shot and the replacement enzyme does the work that, of breaking down the excess protein that my body's not able to do. Um, so in the past two years, I've had to learn how to eat a normal diet, which is a very bizarre thing because, you know, the world's not very accommodating of teaching a 40 year old adult how to, you know, how to cook meat and how to do all sorts of things people learn as children. Yeah. What, what foods are you enjoying now that you didn't, that you weren't able to eat before? Yeah, uh, I think eggs and peanut butter may be my two favorite new foods. Those people are so like love it at the moment. It's one of those things that apparently like goes with everything. Um, yes, yeah, so I've touched on already um, about like the psychology of rare disease, and I talk about it quite a lot that you know rare disease isn't just a physical diagnosis; it affects your know, mental health and so many elements of your life. But I know this is a topic that you um, quite like to talk about as well. So um, how do you think your rare disease has affected you emotionally? That's a really great question because I don't think I really started thinking about that question until I was maybe 35 or 36 years old. Mm -hmm. My condition is also invisible. So somebody passing me on the street wouldn't know I had any sort of invisible disability or chronic illness. So I didn't really get a lot of accommodation or special treatment because of my rare disease. And so that has lots of impacts on a person's social life and feeling included in, in community events. And it just affects the way um, you feel about participating at things like, like parties. Yeah. Um, but because it was normal to me and because I hadn't really processed it, I didn't really um, think through all of the ways that it that it affected me 
um, both positively and negatively. Um, maybe it was easier to identify some of the negative impacts too. Um, but as I sort of began to thought through it, think through it and process it, um, I've considered myself much more of an advocate now than I was um, growing up. And once I sort of began to identify the ways that this affected me and that it had a real impact on my life, I became more comfortable sharing my story. Um, but I, I feel like that in some ways it has made me more resilient person um, and more authentic. I don't, you know, I've always um, been able to make independent decisions and not follow the crowd and, and stand my, by my convictions. And I think a lot of that comes from just the isolation of chronic illness and constantly having to say no to food um, that other people were participating in. It was harmful to me. So I said no to a lot of things other people were doing. And I developed different interests and different hobbies and, you know, just kind of learn to make independent decisions based on what was best for me. And I think that's a really important um, lesson that stuck with me from from just a lifetime of restrictive treatment. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's really important to also talk about the positives that it's kind of brought out. I, I recently did something for a charity and I, I, it was a letter to my younger self. And I, and I used the word resilient so many times because it you really... You know, resilience is one of those things that is so important in any situation, but definitely having a rare disease or chronic illness because you're constantly, you know, having to bounce back from different situations and adapting. Um, yeah, I really like how you touched on the positive side. I suppose, like, we'll go on to it later, but advocacy work kind of ties into all of it. Um, but what if I said, oh, you own your rare disease? What what words come to mind? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it has a lot to do with communication and being able to speak up for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the United States, we have the Americans with Disability Act. And because I hadn't processed some of these things and because the information wasn't available then, um, that was passed in, in 1996, I believe. So I was maybe 94, but I was already a teenager mm -hmm. um, when accommodations became a legal requirement. So I didn't know that I had access to things that I had access to. Um, and so I was afraid to ask for things because I didn't know that I was legally protected. Um, and I, I think as I began to go down this journey and explore um, how this affected my life, one of the things I realized is, wait, I do fit the legal definitions of a disability and I have rights and I should ask, ask to be accommodated and ask to, you know, have the things provided for me that I need because they're not unreasonable. And so it changed the way I, I approached a lot of situations. I started sending letters of medical necessity ahead of myself at work conferences and at professional meetings and really, you know, being clear about what I needed and, and um, not apologizing if, if somebody questioned it. And so I think that has been one of the key, um, I guess, mental breakthroughs for me is just, you know, my life has different needs than somebody without a chronic illness. And it, it, there's nothing wrong with asking for what I need to take care of myself well. Yeah, I think, you know, the word that came to mind when you just explained that, like confidence, as in confidence to either speak up or kind of realise because I know some people don't 
like saying oh my illness is a disability I feel like disability like it's kind of a taboo word that some people don't like using but yeah I think when you you know when you obviously realize you have your rare disease and have the confidence to speak up it it really shows that it doesn't define you but you're also entitled to the support that is there um yeah I've I think that's something that I've definitely seen as a is a challenge in my own medical community and I there was a big portion of my life that I didn't like defining myself as having a disability either um it wasn't a label that I liked um but I think you know what I've told people is you don't have to adopt that label if you're not comfortable with it but at least in the U.S. you should be aware that you have a legal right to accommodations and expect to be treated as such um because it will, you know, it'll make your life easier. You know, you don't have to say you're disabled. You don't ever have to use that label to identify yourself, but you know, take advantage of legal protections that give you access to treatment that you need. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we go on to the um, next topic of medical treatments, if someone had just been newly diagnosed with rare disease or they're finding it difficult to own their rare disease, as we just talked about, what kind of advice would you give someone for either becoming more confident or maybe reaching out for help? I, th I think community is really one of the keys, especially with rare disease, because it's such an unusual experience and it's not one that's relatable to the general population. And even the rare disease community, everybody has such a unique story, but I, community makes a really critical difference. I think at any stage, just knowing other people with similar stories really helps um, to be more confident uh, in your own because, you know, even if that story is on social or communities on Instagram or social media, you still have somebody that you can process things with who understands and understands how it feels and what the challenges are and can relate. And so I think the number one thing I would tell anybody is to find a to find a community, and even aside from family support networks and friend support networks, people who who share similar experiences who you don't have to always explain yourself to. Yeah, and I think you know there were I've got I think there were like seven thousand different rare diseases out there or something, but even you know I'm sure if me and you had a a bigger chat about our separate rare diseases, there were still definitely going to be topics that we can both relate to whether that's you know mental health employment you know it could be anything um but yeah and then on the on the flip side of that someone else that I know with my rare disease some of our experiences completely different so yeah when you, yeah it really is true when you say everyone's story is unique um but yeah so kind of going on to advancing medical treatments how important do you think it is um for advancing medical treatment and research in rare disease it's super important um, and advocacy is such a big part of that. Like I said, being 41 years old, the things that I'm experiencing now were not possibilities when I was a child. They weren't even imaginable five or 10 years ago. Um, one of the things about PKU, and there's been some articles on this, is a fairly well understood rare disease. So it's um, 
because of that, the community is fortunate to have a lot of medical research directed to it. But that's also because it allows um, scientists to understand other rare diseases and to develop treatments that have similar uh, capacities that can be used to treat other conditions. Um, and so that's, so it's exciting to see those medical breakthroughs because I think eventually they won't be used just to treat PKU, maybe different iterations of a particular type of treatment, um, but will help to advance other types of treatments. I think just from a quality of life perspective, it's been really eye-opening to uh, see some of the differences in my own experience with advancing treatment. Uh, for example, so I mentioned earlier, my condition is managed through monitoring blood protein levels. Mm -hmm. And so in the past few years on this current treatment, it's the only point in my life that they've been completely stable for a long period of time. They'd fluctuate really wildly and it was very difficult to, to manage even when I was doing my best. And so realizing the energy that I have and the capacity to dedicate to other things besides just managing my condition, um, the mental clarity that I have from having good blood protein levels. It's like, you know, it's kind of like amazing to realize that people without a rare disease experience this all the time. Yeah. And then on the other hand, realizing I didn't really realize how much I was struggling because it was so normal to me. Um, and I think that's really been the most eye-opening thing is like, wow, this is such a different quality of life than I ever expected or even knew as possible. Um, I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, you said you haven't known any different. So kind of suddenly feeling different or, you know, having the available treatment. Yeah, it's kind of adapting to, even though it's better, obviously adapting to that again. Um, yeah. Do you know any more like treatment research in the pipeline for your condition or not? I don't know the status of it, but I um, know that there's gene editing that's they're trying to develop. So they're trying to actually um edit the the gene that's defective and i don't know any of the science behind it but it's amazing that that's even being researched and yeah i was gonna say even be considered <laughs> yeah it sounds absolutely amazing but yeah as you said kind of through your lifetime already there have been advancing medical treatments and i know you said you know it gives you the reassurance but also um it helps you know patients and families of those their mental health kind of knowing that this research is going to be beneficial to them um in the future so yeah i think also come organizations you know shouting about the research they're doing and kind of keeping their patients informed is really important um not just physically but as as you said um mentally as well um so then the last topic um and i know like you're very active in this um is your advocacy work so if we go back to the beginning of when you first decided that you wanted to advocate for your rare disease or the rare disease community in general. Um, when did you start your advocacy work? Kind of what, what was your motivation behind it? I don't think it was ever directly an intentional decision. I have done some advocacy work um, in my professional life mm -hmm. for a number of years, um, working on consumer financing policy and helping people, helping make sure that consumers have access to fair information about banking products and loans and, and that type of thing. Um, 
for me, it actually started with an Instagram account. It was back in 2015 and I was really struggling with managing my condition. And so I was like, let me just start posting on social media the ideas of what I was eating. And this was back when I was still on dietary treatment. And it eventually just grew and I got to build a little community and get to know people and form relationships through this Instagram page. And so the more I formed a community, and that's why I said earlier that community is so important, the more I felt connected and the more I wanted to be involved and the more I wanted to uh, participate and reach out to other people in the community that were struggling. I actually it was one of the last things before COVID, but I was able to go to Washington DC in the US with uh, an organization called Every Life Foundation here and meet with congressional staffers about policies that were being proposed for the rare disease community. And that was another really eye-opening experience for me because I got to see how the whole community worked together and that it wasn't just the PKU community advocating for treatment, but it was people representing 7,000 rare diseases that made up a, you know, made up a, a voting block that got the attention of legislators. And, um, and then seeing from past stories how that legislation had um, led to policy change that allowed for the funding of my own treatment um, made me realize how important it was to get involved. Um, on national levels as well. And everything's virtual right now, but I've been able to participate in some virtual events and it's not quite the same, but it's still important to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, even patients being involved in, you know, things like policy is so important. Um, I sat on something last week and I was one of the only patients there and it was such a good opportunity because, you know, everyone had the best intention in forming this policy, but if you don't get a patient's experience then you know those, those case studies or that those experiences are really important to um consider but yeah definitely a patient-centered approach is really important um so you kind of touched on some bits already but what would you say your main advocacy highlights have been so far what have been your favorite bits i think going to dc um just before COVID was one of my favorite, um, but I've also been able to speak at patient events. And I love doing that because I've been really fortunate to be fairly integrated into the larger PK community all my life. My parents um, were board members of our state organization and were very active in taking me to events that were organized to meet other kids with PKU. And I um, actually have a sibling and a cousin with the same condition. So I never felt completely isolated. But as I've traveled around the country, I've realized that there are people who still never met another person with PKU. And sometimes that blows my mind because I don't, I don't know how, you know, you can manage that type of condition without having the connection. But so it's always great to see other people with the same condition and encourage them and, and share my story in a way that helps them think of a, a different way to handle the situation or just to feel like there's um, hope. One thing in particular, uh, because people were taken off diet with my condition at such a young age, 
um, there were a lot of social impacts of that. Sometimes people, you know, had difficulty completing school or holding a job. And I've been fortunate to be successful in both my career and academia. Um, I am currently a consultant, but was formerly the CEO of a financial institution. I am completing a degree at a top tier school. And the community, I think, needs more success stories like that. Um, I didn't see any growing up. And so I like to share my story because I want other people in the community to see what's possible, even with a challenge most people don't have, if you are consistent and diligent with taking care of yourself, because that's, you know, it's really important to make sure you're doing everything you can to take care of yourself as best you can as well. Yeah, I think um, going back to what you said about knowing other people with the red, like your rare disease or any rare disease, that's so important. I, I know what a few other people from my rare disease, but one in particular, um, I think it's the same with quite a few people. Like you, you can talk about it at a different level, I suppose. I think kind of having someone outside of your immediate family and friend circle sometimes that you can really like talk about your experiences with is so important. Obviously, I'm sure like friends and family also are really helpful, but I suppose being able to talk to someone outside that immediate circle, as I said, having those connections is um, so important. So the last question before I ask for your three words and a quote, are there any advocacy events in the pipeline? I know you said they're all virtual at the moment, but are there any projects in the pipeline? I don't have anything coming up right now. Um, I've actually been concentrating more directly on my own website and making sure that I'm putting out useful content for the PKU community. But over time, I hope to broaden that into I not just PKU focus, but being able to incorporate perspectives of other people and, and share stories. Um, so I put a lot of effort into that recently, um, but definitely hope to be able to continue to participate in upcoming advocacy events when they're available. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully it'll be back to face-to-face -face soon, but we will see. <laughs> We're getting there. Yeah, yeah, slowly but surely, I feel. Um, but yeah, right, so have you got three words to sum up either your rare disease or your rare, the overall rare disease experience so far? Uh, I would use hope, discipline, and resilience. Resiliency. The key, that's a, I feel that's a key word with any anyone with a rare disease. Or, but yeah, so important. And discipline, yeah. I suppose when you were younger and obviously you had to have a really restrictive diet, especially as a child, that must have been so difficult you know in school with other people required a lot of structure and planning <laughs> so yeah I got used to being very disciplined yeah um and finally your quote one of my favorite quotes is from Brene Brown and it says when we deny the story it defines us but when we own the story we can write a brave new ending which goes back to the subject of owning your story. So yeah, um, thank you for sharing your experiences and a bit about your condition. I'm going to put your website in the um, podcast like description box, so I'll get everyone to have a look. But yeah, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Absolutely, it was fun to do this. Thanks for having me. Right, thank you very much.